Hi, I'm Hope Roth, and you are listening to The Floating Point on Rave Pubs Radio. The Floating Point is brought to you by our good friends at Ingram Micro. Ingram Micro, for all of your AV and IT needs. I've got my co-host, Chris Tatton, back with me today, the Andy Richter to my Conan, the thorn, the thorn in my side. Welcome back. We missed you when we talked. Uh, glad to be back. We talked by amp last month, and, and it was a good conversation, and you missed all the pig poop, so I'm, fe- I'm feeling bad for you today. Uh, today, uh, today, we have Jay Basson. He is a primarily residential programmer, uh, gifted the Crestron programming community with some of his modules as he prepares for a new stage of his life. Uh, and I think we can learn some stuff from him because the man knows how to program a large system and program it future-proof. So, Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you ended up in our industry, and what your plans for the future are. Great. Um, I don't feel I really got into the AV industry. I really got into the automation industry and automation happens to be sold by AV dealers. Um, My background is electrical engineering and software development. I have a master's degree in engineering, but I've never really done anything but write software. Uh, I started writing software for military systems for the Air Force and then the Army. I went on to write software for medical diagnostic instruments. Uh, Then I joined a software consulting company that that focused on software solutions for the Fortune 1000, where among other things, I ended up writing uh, economic modeling software for the World Bank. I rose to being the vice president and chief technology officer at that company and helped it grow from 11 people to around 250 with offices in multiple states. But my wife and I always wanted to move to a small ski town. And the VP of a software company isn't really marketable in a small ski town. So I hit a point in my, in my career where I wanted to reinvent myself. I had been a home automation hobbyist with a technology that some people may remember called X10 for many years and decided to turn that into a new career. So I found a Crestron dealer that was willing to take a risk on me. And that was about you know, 12 going on 13 years ago. And at this point, I'm slowly moving, or rather quickly at this point, moving into retirement. I just take on a few jobs for, you know, specialized customers when there's something that they need, you know, some help with and that I'm interested in. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. I, there's, <laughs> sorry, I'm just in awe at your credentials. <laughs> Um, one of the reasons I asked Jay to come on the show today is because um, as the our industry sort of changes and grows over time, first of all, I want to say thank you for your, your thoughts about it being automation and that AB happens to sell it because I think that sort of goes in line with how a lot of people are thinking towards the future where we're, we're part of a larger technology industry. Um, and there's so many things that we can control and touch and automate. So it's not just TVs. I, I personally do a lot of lighting, uh, so that becomes part of it. But, you know, you, you sort of look at the whole building and, and how all that gets controlled. Um, and I think we're seeing lots, lots more large-scale projects, especially as we sort of get huddle spaced out of that medium-sized market. 
So I think that for our, our, you know, three listeners and my mom who might be listening, probably not. Um, it's really good to think about how you can do a large scale system because I think that's where people will still have this job, you know, five, 10 years from now. So thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Um, Chris, do you have anything to add to that? No, I mean, I think it, it, it's great to, to have somebody that does a lot of residential work with, with large systems. Um, I've only really done commercial work. Um, so I'm definitely interested in hearing the differences in, in the two markets and, and how you scale them differently. Sure. You know, you, you can't just say, now I'm going to write a scalable system for the big project that you just got handed. You know, you need to expect that you're going to get a huge project dumped on you because someday it's going to happen and you need to prepare. And the first thing you have to really start with is reuse. You can't start from scratch on every project, you know, in the residential world. It's too expensive and doesn't build that foundation of good code that you can scale from. So there are really two approaches. You can start with the last project you did or the closest project in scope to the one you just got handed. Or as I did, you can use a template. Um, the last closest project as a starting point has the advantages, there's zero cost to maintain it. The problem is, is that it gets very, very messy over time. You know, that unique little feature that this one customer wanted that nobody else or ever want and was really ugly to implement gets intertwined in your code. And that other feature that was really nice that this last customer didn't want gets dumped out. And so you end up with over time, the thing just getting messier and messier and you've got leftover pieces from all different projects in there that just cause you heartburn. The template on the other hand, is a significant investment, you know, make no mistake. It takes a lot to write one. Um, ongoing maintenance to add the new ideas that you come up with over time adds to it. It also tends to be this really bloated program because the concept behind a template is that it has every possible feature in it. And when you go into your, your next project with it, you're simply deleting stuff. You just cut out what you don't want. And that way it's much fat, but you know, it's, it's very simple that it's much faster to delete stuff than it is to rewrite it. The big advantage is it's over time, it's fully tested code. Your template should be a program that will really run and that you can sit there and test with over and over again when you have free time and get every last bug out of it. So you're not finding those bugs when you're actually on site working on the project and getting it customized for, customized for this next client. And another big advantage is if you're in a, if you're in a um, software shop with multiple programmers, then you can jump from project to project because everybody's code looks the same. You walk in there, somebody's out sick, sick you can take over and feel really comfortable as opposed to having everybody's code look totally different. You go in there and go, I have no idea what's going on here. You know, so from a scalability perspective, though, the number one thing is to first look at your code and make sure it's efficient. 
You know, are you doing silly things like looping in simple plus, looking at a clock to iterate, to create a 10 second delay, or are you doing a delay statement that uses the OS scheduler and saves a lot of processing resources? You've got to go through as a starting point and make sure that all the little things you're doing aren't wasting a lot of processor cycles. Because if you scale up to something big, little things like that will come back and burn you. The big thing about scalability is, is scaling the multiple processors, processors when things get really big. You know, I, the largest project I ever did was a 75,000 square foot house that had, I believe it was a dozen processors in it. And you have to figure out how you're going to divide up your code between all those processors so things continue to run efficiently. The first thing you need to attack is to break your program up into logical portions. If you're just trying to break it up on at first cut based on what takes the most processing power that and you start separating all that stuff out that doesn't make sense when you're trying to debug and get your code really working so it makes it much harder to work with so your first step of doing it should be to take and break it up logically break your hvac code up think of that in one program on one processor take your lighting code lighting is easy to separate out on a, on a processor. If, if it's a Lutron system, it is on a processor by itself. But even if you've got a lot of code that is um, talking to the Lutron system and taking all that and doing other things with it before you put it out on your on touch panels, break that out into a separate program. By breaking these things out logically, each of them is small enough that you can get your arms around it and really understand. When you think of a 75,000 square foot house that there are millions and millions of features of all kinds of garbage in that place, you know, locking cabinet doors for liquor cabinets and all kinds of crazy stuff. If it's all mashed together, it's just a mess. If it's logically broken apart, it's easier, much easier to understand. So once you've broken things out logically, now look at your processor hogs. You know, you've got a bunch of different things where you've got a bunch of AV code. Well, there are 10 Kaleidoscape players in this place, and those, the processing for a Kaleidoscape player is a huge hog. Break that out into a separate program. It doesn't need to be the rest with all the code that's just gonna sit there and, and um, handle your, your um, uh, Blu-ray player or your satellite receiver. Then document your system. What I did is I created a big block diagram that had one block for each processor. It laid out everything in that processor and it laid out the inner systems communication for how those block diagrams were gonna communicate with each other. And then I got it reviewed. You know, on this project, we actually went to Crestron. We were able to rally some guys from engineering and that diagram became the talking point for probably a two hour meeting going through the whole thing, hashing it out, getting some really guys that really know what's happening under the hood to sit there and talk through it. And I ended up making a lot of changes based on their recommendations to get the thing, you know, to have that really good solid foundation that I could build on. And the big advantage of having a big multiprocessor system is with the three series processors, you can, 
run all those pieces on one processor up to 10. So you can, you know, have a pretty simple test environment in your house or in your office or wherever you're working from and test this massive system and make sure it works. No, those are really great points. I think that, uh, you have to build from scalability from the beginning. You, you, you know, it's not something that just comes after the fact it, it's, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, can you tell us more? So how much time do you think that you actually spend, um, modifying your template? Do you think like now that now, I mean, I got to imagine that at this point it's pretty stable as far as, um, what you're using, like how much time do you think you spent going back and forth, um, discovering new features that you needed to add, fixing, you know, things that didn't quite work out the way you wanted them to when you put them in a live system? How much time do you think you devoted to that? Oh God, <laughs> countless hours over the years. Um, you know, I'm really on the fourth iteration of my template. Um, the first one was built by necessity rather than plan um, because I did run into that situation where I had a massive project dumped on me that I was totally unprepared for. In fact, it was the second Crestron program I ever worked on was um, for a 16,000 square foot house that the customer wanted to program and automate everything in the entire house. Um, and the only thing I'd, the only Crestron pro project I'd ever worked on before that was one where I did it with another guy and I did the user interface. Um, so the first one was just crazy. And, you know, but you learn a lot from the school of hard knocks and the project ended up winning whole piles of awards, everything from that electronic house home of the year award and a whole pile of other things. And it was multiple articles were, were written about it. Um, so I guess it turned out okay in the end. So I it was, I, uh, I had a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> I believe um, they call that trial by fire. Is, oh yeah. Is, is and I definitely got burned. technical term for it. Um, <laughs> I think that I, I have a very basic template that I use for lighting jobs. I, um, just because, you know, a lot of times you could have 30 zones of lighting, six different rooms. And we do a lot of stuff, um, very similarly with a scheduler, join numbers, touch panels and everything. And I found that forcing yourself to make that time to, to start a base program, something that you can start from, it's hard, especially when you have deadlines, you have clients looking for work, you have things that you need to get done. But then the flip of that is, you know, if it saves you two hours every time you start a job because you're not starting from scratch and reinventing the wheel, it, it, it's, it, it, uh, it helps you in the long run. It's just, you know, making that time and that investment up front. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, I, mine has changed, I th think, four times over the, over the last 12 years. And the, the first time was, was really trial by fire. The second time was I learned, I got in, in a situation where I got to interact with another programmer who'd been at it for a lot longer than I had. And I learned um, where I had a lot of the communications going on between all my modules through digital signals. He used analogs to simplify a lot of that. And I went back and thought about it and realized it was a great idea. And I rewrote the entire template from the ground up 
using analogs for communication. And over a period of time, I found that the analogs had downsides. And you know, the fact that they stay and have a continuous value can be a, as much of a curse as it can be a help. And I ended up switching over to using serial signals to communicate between all my modules. And so when the customer pressed a uh, button that selected a specific source, a serial signal would run from the user interface code over to the code for the specific room specifying what source it was and what room this was all coming from. And the rooms would sit there and take that code and then do all the work to select that source, turn on AV receivers, turn on TVs, do whatever was needed to make it all happen. Um, but I found that serial signals for me worked much better. And then as I got into truly, you know, hitting a situation where I needed to start scaling to um, in three series to um, multiple programs running on a single um, process or, or even having something that I could easily jump out to, to having, you know, separating those programs to multiple processors. Um, then I, I started dividing things up into separate programs and intercommunicated with Ethernet intersystems communication. And I think the, you know, one important point for people that are getting involved in this and start saying, oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I'm gonna jump in and start using Ethernet, breaking my programs up and start using Ethernet intersystems communication is to be very careful of loops in your communications. If you have a signal that goes from one program across an Ethernet intersystems communication to another, and then turns around and goes back the other direction from that same program back, and the simplest form is that it's all the same signal name, that will drive a processor crazy until it crashes. And you will not know what is going on because everything looks great. It all looks perfect until your ethernet watchdog kicks and your programs crash and everything comes tumbling down. And it can take minutes, it can take hours, it can take days before it's gonna occur and you will drive yourself nuts. So just be very, very careful with them because otherwise you'll drive yourself to, to insanity. In my line of work, we call that making the lights go all blinky blinky. Yeah. <laughs> when you're sending that analog value for the lights and you accidentally put it on both sides and you get the thousand and one logic wave error and the lights don't stop flashing, that's that's what that will do. Um, you can also tell you can also tell that's happening often if you open up a simple debugger and you can't actually see a signal because there's so much stuff going through. That's also a pretty good indication that you've stuck a loop in there by accident somewhere. Um, the other thing I wanted to, I wanted to talk about, you, you, you mentioned something Jay that I thought was very interesting as far as, you know, separating things out into, into, you know, having, having room logic versus user interface logic versus device level logic. Um, and I think that's really important for scalability is making sure that you even, you know, you, you had talked about logical steps for breaking things up, you know, to into different programs if you needed to, but even within the same program, it's really important to have those logical groups to 
be able to replicate those efficiently. Yeah, absolutely. You know, keeping your code, keeping your code well organized in folders and designing your signal names so they are clear, concise, and designed for duplication. Um, so that you can go through, if I have a, um, all the code for a touch panel, um, the touch panel code itself all will have um, a prefix of TP underscore one, zero one, TP underscore zero two, zero three, whatever starting it. So if I need to make another touch panel, it's copy a folder, a top level folder, you know, duplicate it, paste it, duplicate it, then F9, TP underscore zero one to TP underscore zero two, um, boom, you're done. Yeah, I've become a big fan of using brackets in that way as kind of my indexing for things. Yep, what um, I, you know, whatever you use, there's lots of choices. Just yeah. make sure it works. <laughs> yeah, the, the big thing is make sure that you can copy paste F9. Yeah. Uh, and for those of you who are wondering how you might get good at doing that, one of those is one of the ways to do it is to just try it. And if you find that you have to go in your folder and change something, you kind of did it wrong. Um, another thing would be to do an online course on real expressions, which is something I spent a whole semester learning on, uh, learning about, and it's come in real handy in terms of thinking what, what your wild cards are, what might change, so that you can do your copy pasting F9. Sometimes things aren't, don't always line up, so if that happens, I'll usually stick a comment in there that says, hey, this one has two zones instead of one, so I don't accidentally copy and paste the wrong thing. It's one of those things you kind of just learn by trial and error, but it will save you so much time in the long run. I, I think my biggest coup with that was another programmer had to do a couple quick updates to my code a few weeks ago. And first they, first they said, okay, they're asking for an iPad. They just had an X panel. They want an iPad now. Five minutes later, he had an update. That was it? Yeah, that was it. And then... Um, in, this was several systems all working together and the X panel just lived on one and then they talked together over Ethernet inner systems and they added on one system, they added a couple more zones. All right, here's the code. But what about the code for the X panel? Oh, that doesn't change. What do you mean that doesn't change? It doesn't change. It's all set. It's ready to go um, because I have things buffered and I'm using um, a lot of times I try and use a smart graphic that lets you do some things dynamically. So all you have to do is change an analog value and then all of a sudden your list has 12 items in it instead of 10, that sort of thing. Um, and it definitely is worth the effort to learn how to do this sort of stuff because it will save you a lot of time in the long run. Yeah, I think another trick in there is uh, in your numbering for whatever it is, touch panels, devices, you know, whatever you've got, use leading zeros. Um, because if you don't, then they, when you do and looking something in alphabetical order in some list, it doesn't show up properly. But if you use a uh, leading zeros, then if you're doing TP 010203, when you jump to TP 10, everything looks right. <laughs> Just save you a lot of heartache in looking at things in debugger or looking at things in lists. Yeah, I, oh, go right ahead. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I've, I've found that whenever, you know, working on anything for scalability, the, the plan is to to try to kick the can down the road as far as reasonably um, possible. You know, obviously, you know, depending on what you're doing, you might need not need to hold out, you know, 
you know, four leading zeros, you might not have over 10,000 lighting zones, you know, for what you're doing, but you know, you should plan for a, a number that's, you know, at least an order of magnitude higher than, than what you think is, is, you know, bordering on unreasonable. Yeah. I think the other part of this is that, you know, change is inevitable. You know, programs are going to change. Um, you know, but you gotta, you gotta plan for it. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you think in terms of what the client, the client cares about scope of what is what the system does and the user interface. That's it. They could really care less about your code. And while we all may be very proud of our code, you know, it's not what the client cares about. Um, but you need to review your UI early with the client. Ideally, you review it with them as part of the sales process. If, you can, if you're there working with a dealer and you can get yourself ejected in the sale process, sales process and actually show the user interface to the client, you're way ahead of the game. Um, this helps you get the expectations set with the client of what it is they are really buying. And this is the advantage again of a template. If your template is working code that you've tested, you can show all the features to the client right up front. You can get right up front, no, I don't want it to do that. You know, that's great. You know, I don't need HVAC, you know, control in my house. It's just not that complicated, but I really, really want a security system integration. Oh yeah, that looks really good. That would work really well, you know, for, for the security system in my house, you know, or no, I need um, these three extra buttons that I use all the time on my system. Um, you get all that laid out, all that understood right up front and any other change, any changes you can prototype, show the client, get his agreement. Now when you move forward to into the code, you really have scope well-defined, you know, and the best thing about it is if you followed up in writing with the client and said, okay, you saw the prototype, here of all the things you've requested to change. You know, you didn't want HVAC, you wanted these three buttons added to the security screen, you, you wanted five direct TV players, you wanted um, three cable boxes, two Blu-ray players, and the list goes on. The combination of this, that short list with the prototype, you know, and with your UI template, fully defined scope. And anything after that is now under, can be understood to both you and the client of it being a change that's been requested down the road. So it allows you to really get in there and hold that thing together. You know, and when a change occurs, you know, first and foremost, you got to be accommodating. You know, everything isn't a change order. You know, as Hope said, oh, it took five minutes to add that extra touch panel. Why charge the customer for five minutes of time? You know, that just adds to aggravation between you and, and disrupts it for when there could be a really big issue that they now want to add in there. And now you can say, okay, you know, hey, you know, we give you the small things, but now you got to pay us some extra money. Um, the technique that I always liked, um, that I tried to use back in the days when I was in, the cons in consulting, 
was to plan for change in the proposal. And what we would do is we would add a pool of money into the proposal that was specifically for changes. When a change came up, you wouldn't ask, you wouldn't be sitting there going, I need 500 bucks. You'd be sitting there going, okay, you know, we got this money for changes. This is what it's for. Um, you know, we're estimating it's going to cost about 500 bucks for that. We'll just grab it from the, grab it from the pool. Is that okay with you? Yep. That's okay with me. Customer says, and you move on. You know, there isn't this bickering every time you, you know, you're going out there with your hand out asking for money on a continual basis from the customer. At the end of the project, if you've, you know, didn't run through the pool, the customer gets a little bit of a refund and he's really happy now. Um, on the other hand, if, you know, a, something comes up and the customer wants constant changes, you have a list of all the things you did that came out of that pool. And now you go back and say, hey, you know, would you like to fund for some more changes? How about if we add another two or $3,000 in there and we can keep moving forward and you have a lot of flexibility in asking us to do other things. You know, it just avoids a lot of conflict. But that's just a, you know, sort of a, a business technique to sit there and make the programmer's life a lot easier. I, f I found that people will ask for unlimited changes until they have to pay for them. And then all of a sudden they become uh, quite a bit more flexible. I also find that I, I program defensively a lot in that I will anticipate someone changing their mind about something. And so I try to set everything up in a way that, you know, if they want to change the timeout for their motion sensors, we do it in one spot. We don't do it in 50. If they want to change the color on their touch panel, you know, it's a quick, you know, it's a quick change. It's not going to take me all day. I I try for that anyways, don't always succeed. But I, I also find that every time you do a job like this, you, you kind of learn from your mistakes and the, and the next job gets a little bit easier. That probably goes back, Jay, to your, to your template where it sort of became a living document. You know, every time you do a job, you say, oh, you know what would have been really great if I had had this. And then you go back and you kind of add it to the, to the template. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I also did things in the template where I took things that commonly changed in the residential world and broke them out into configuration files that were read off of Envy, out of NVRAM um, or removable media. You know, things like room names, people's names, device names, you know, all those things went into text files that the system would read at startup. Um, you know, it, uh, Sue, little Susie grows up, goes to college, and now Susie's room becomes the sewing room or the scrapbooking room, you know, and all that stuff can be done by, doesn't even require a programmer. It just requires somebody with a text editor and toolbox to up, re-upload the file and restart the processor so it reloads. You know, so, a, you know, a technician can go out there and, and make those kinds of changes and not even involve programming. I've, I've started building some modules uh, for that sort of thing as well. And I think that Crestron is actually trying to push us in that direction. Some of us more quick kicking and screaming than others maybe, but I, I feel like we've got a lot more tools with Simple Sharp Pro, with um, some of the, you know, the modules that are available out there. A lot of the smart objects will support, you know, things that'll let you set things up. But I found that, you know, I, if I set things up with an XML file, um, you know, 
coworker says, hey, you know, these six rooms we need to change from, you know, when you walk in the room, the lights turn on to, you know, they only turn off if the room goes vacant after a certain period of time. Okay, here's your XML file, done. It's a quick update. Um, and one of the beauties of the XML file is that it can be edited in Excel. So even somebody who is maybe not comfortable with something like that can often open it up and edit it quickly. Um, and then you just load and, and you're good to go. So I, I've definitely started doing a lot more of the things with the config file. I kind of I like make a Venn diagram in my own head of how everything in my system is similar. And then I try and figure out um, what's at the margins of that, what's not in the center in the middle, and how I could maybe do that from a config file or how I can sort of plan for that so that you can have that base of your system that's all cookie cutter and then you kind of have your margins on the end that you that you're you're sort of editing in, a, in an efficient fashion I guess you could say. Yeah XML is is a great medium for some of those text files with a lot of configuration information because in a, in a way it's self-documenting and it's easy for somebody to read it and understand what's going on. I wrote a um, program at one point to manage shades in a house and the whole idea was that you could it was all it was actually written as part of the original closed beta for simple sharp pro and the program would read a xml file that defined all the windows in the house all the shade hardware in the house um, <clears throat> and how you wanted how the shades need, wanted to be optimized in the house because you can sit there and do several things with shades. You can optimize them based on energy management, where if it's wintertime and it's closed and it's cold outside, you want to open a, sh a shade to let the, the sun shine in through the window and heat the room. On the other hand, if it's the middle of the summer, you want to close that shade when, as soon as the sun hits it and block the shade and keep the thermal load from, from bogging down the air conditioning. So all that was driven in an XML file and the program would actually um, track through calculation the angle and elevation of the sun and decide whether or not based on the definition of, the, of a window in the XML file, whether the sun was actually at that time shining through that specific window and that it would take actions based on what the customer preferences were for how to optimize the uh, shades for that room because some rooms would have valuable furnishings in them you know that you needed to no matter what it was doing protect those rooms from the sun other rooms you wanted to handle more on a on an energy optimization level I was actually that was one of the things I wanted to ask I, I took a look at your template um, and I did notice that there didn't appear to be any simple sharp in there so I was curious about whether or not you had any experience with it or um, had thought about, you know, moving some of the stuff that you were doing into Simple Sharp or Simple Sharp Pro? Yeah, I, I wrote that one program, I said, when I was invited into the private beta, when Simple Sharp Pro was first being developed, and that was sort of my test of, you know, you know, pushing Simple Sharp Pro. And I've written a little bit of Simple Sharp now. Um, uh, I've written two modules that I've thrown out on Yahoo is Shareware. Um, one of them integrates a uh, Crestron processor with uh, an IoT service called If This Then That, which is really useful. Um, you know, I use it in my own house for uh, integrating um, three echoes we have around the house. 
that are now become the primary interface for the way my wife and I interact with the Crestron system. We just talk to it at this point. And, um, but you can, if this, then that, if you're not, ex if you haven't looked at it as a great service that integrates, they have what they call channels, uh, you know, Alexa for um, uh, the Amazon Echo is just one of, you know, like 350 channels that they have at this point for various devices and other uh, internet services. So you can send emails using um, if this, then that. You can send text messages. You can get um, phone location information um, out of your, your cell phone for when you're arriving or leaving the house. Uh, it's really a, a pretty neat um, service. The other thing I wrote a simple sharp module uh, uh, for is uh, Prowl which is the Growl Macintosh notification system for iPhones. And it's just a useful way of triggering pop-up notifications on your phone. Sounds very interesting. I'll have to check it out. Good stuff. Um, I feel like we could probably spend six shows talking about this. Maybe we'll have to have you back on for another master class uh, if you're not skiing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I only skied um, 137 days last year. <laughs> oh, you poor thing. I feel yeah. very sorry for you. Um, so we like to wrap up every show with a sort of lighthearted question to, re <laughs> to, reward, uh, to reward people with sticking with us through the, through the real expressions. Um, and so because you, I think, are one of our first guests on who has a, a more residential background, um, I'm very excited about this because um, I've actually worked in pretty much all the verticals. I started out in higher ed. I worked in commercial. I'm in residential now as well as uh, the commercial lighting. But the residential people always have the best stories. Even, yeah. if, even before I worked residential, I knew, you know, when, you, when you're at Crestron training, you find the resi programmers and you say, all right, tell me some stories because they've always got some good ones. You're in somebody's house. The person paying the money for the system is the person who will be enjoying the system. So then you don't have that sort of CTO uh, or CFO stepping in and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, so you always have some good stories. So my question for you this week, and I don't know how you're going to answer this one, Chris, because you're not usually in people's houses, but what is the most awkward situ job situation you've ever had from working in a person's house? And I can... Um, Start with mine if you need a second. No, no. Uh, I can't tell you mine because it was really an awkward situation for a customer. And if I talk about it, people might know who it was. But I can tell you two stories from a guy that I worked with who had been in the industry longer than I had. And he's actually out of the industry at this point. So nothing can come back to him. Um, the first one was where he went to a house and he had had a longstanding relationship with with the homeowners, the, you know, it was a fairly old system that had been maintained for years. And so they, you know, it's typically, it's like, hey, yeah, you know, ring the doorbell. If we're home, we'll come and get, we'll come and answer. If not, we'll leave the door open, you know, the back door open for you. So you just walk around back and come on in and do what you need to do. And so he rings the front doorbell and nobody answers. So he walks around back and there's the wife nude sunbathing by the pool. <laughs> and he just sort of waves and sort of doesn't pay a lot of attention and walks in. And uh, 
later on, uh, the wife comes in and says, uh, so did you see anything out there? And he uh, sort of gets sheepish and admits it. And she goes, her answer was, oh, well. <laughs> and there was another time that uh, uh, this actually the same guy and he was in another homeowner's house, another big house and um, had this massive theater, really a, a very, very cool theater um, down in the basement with a stack of Mark Levinson model blocks running the audio and, you know, an amazing theater. But he goes, he's doing some work around different parts of the house and uh, goes down to the theater, flips the light on, and there is the homeowner's teenage daughter having sex with her boyfriend in the theater. <laughs> So he quickly turned the lights out and made a hasty retreat. <laughs> but those are my two stories. Awkward. <laughs> I, I believe George Takai would say, oh my, <laughs> to that one. I think we can crown Jay the winner right now because yeah, mine's I, don't, not, I, I don't have anything to compete with that. Yeah. Mine, mine's, not, mine's more of an awkward for me, which is that I was in a homeowner's house and their teenage sons were shirtless doing something in one of the rooms, just hanging out. I mean, it was their house. They didn't feel like wearing shirts, but I was like, you know what? I don't really need to be in this room with them. And so I'll just have my coworker fix the problem we're having later. And the next day he was like, you know, the HDMI cable was just unplugged in there, right? <laughs> you could have popped that one back in. And I was like, did you want to walk by the uh, shirtless teenage boys? Because I didn't. So I just kind of looked at it from the doorway. <laughs> well, my story doesn't involve nudity of any kind. Um, um, I'm going to fail you right now for that one. Chris. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But I didn't, you know. So I don't do any residential work. But for some of the um, educational clients we have, we have done their, their dean's residence houses. So it's more of a residential setting, obviously, even though it's being paid from funds from, a, you know, a university. Um, and during one particular uh, day, I was, I was there just making some small, simple changes to the system that we had installed a couple of months ago um, and was there by myself and unfortunately, at some point, there was some sort of issue with the uh, cable TV provider. And the dean's wife was convinced that I was the cable guy and that I was going to fix these problems. Um, and obviously, I'm trying to play it as you know, polite as, as possible. And she was, she was adamant that I was to not leave until the cable worked. So I ended up having to call the... Uh, the the AV guy that I'm was working with and, and say, hey, I need you to come over here and I need you to get me out of this house because I'm all done, but she won't let me leave. So I need your help. <laughs> <laughs> um, and fortunately, he was able to uh, to to come over and explain the situation at least enough that I was able to leave. <laughs> There you go. Held hostage. See, we usually are we usually are there to make sure that the cable guy doesn't screw anything up. So I usually can't leave until they show up anyways. <laughs> but I guess that's that's the difference between Deans and the rest of us. Um well, thank you so much, Jay. I don't know about you, uh, Andy Richter, but I enjoyed this very much. 
it was fantastic to just sit and listen to to all the words of wisdom that Jay had to uh, to offer us. I feel like I'm smarter for having hosted this podcast, um, and I'm going to have to look into the serial string stuff because one of the fi- one of the things that I find hard about making something scalable is how many digital inputs do you put on that? But you can have unlimited strings. That's amazing. I don't. I never thought of that. Well, I want to thank our silent producer Corey Moss. Still with us, still silent. He's a strong silent type. I want to thank Ingram Micro for sponsoring us. I want to thank Jay Basson for dropping some knowledge on us. And I want to thank Chris Tatton for, you know, being Chris Tatton, not, not teasing me too horribly today. I, you have been listening to The Floating Point on Rave Pubs Radio. See you next month. Bye.